This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. I recently learned that we have a tool that converts carbon to oxygen. Think about that. It seems like every conversation around energy is also, at some level, about carbon. Dr. Eric Hinterman helped build and manage a tool called MOXIE, which is a device that pulls carbon from the atmosphere and converts it to oxygen. Eric recently joined SpaceX, and before that he was at MIT and Blue Origin and other places where smart people congregate. MOXIE is intended to be used in space travel and space colonization, where there is an abundance of carbon and little, if any, oxygen. Today, the power required to convert carbon to oxygen on Earth would be counterproductive to say the least. But we're on the path, and I'm optimistic that tools like this will lead to human flourishing. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Eric Hinterman on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Eric Hinterman, welcome to the QTS Experience. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. Um, first of all, I'm so glad you came on because I, I've... In recently, a few months ago, my audience knows this. I went to the Humans to Mars conference. Oh, you did. I did, yeah. and uh, it was a last-minute decision. We went out there. It was a phenomenal experience. We've had a number of people on the show uh, from that uh, event, um, mm -hmm. some uh, astronauts and scientists, etc. And there was a topic that I didn't get to uh, spend time on, but I've since been doing my research, or what what I'm calling research about this idea that I think I heard it from you first about the difficulty, the way you made me think about it was the difficulty isn't so much leaving the earth, but getting yep. back to earth. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And why don't we start there? Wh whatever space travel we're looking at, lunar, Mars, Venus, wherever, we're leaving the earth, we're leaving low earth orbit, and we've got to get, hopefully, that's everybody's um, hope, is we've got to come back. Yeah. Um, why, do you, why do you put that out there? Like, this is one of the challenges, and then we'll lead into the rest of the conversation. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, I always say, assuming we like our astronauts, we want to bring them back. And then my, <laughs> my former graduate uh, school advisor, who used to be an astronaut, gives me a funny look every time I say that. <laughs> I'd want to bring him back, I promise. Um, yeah, no, we know how to leave Earth. We've, we've been doing it for 50 or 60 years now. Um, sending someone to the moon is similar to sending someone to Mars, which is similar to sending someone anywhere else when you're talking about just getting off of the Earth. And the main thing you have to do when you're launching someone into space is get out of Earth's gravity well. Uh, right, gravity's pulling us back down to the surface, so we, we use rockets and uh, they're really good at fighting against Earth's gravity. Now, obviously, right. as you try and send more people, bigger missions or farther away uh, in the solar system, you need bigger rockets or more effective rockets. Uh, but we can get people off the Earth. We've been doing it for a long time. The problem, particularly with Mars, is we need to bring people back. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much a technological problem. Uh, you know, Mars is actually smaller than the Earth, so there's less gravity. So it's actually easier to launch off the surface of Mars than it is to launch off the surface of Earth. Um, it's more of a, a resources and cost problem. Uh, we can build a rocket on Earth because we have facilities to do that. And we have a lot of propellant on Earth to load those rockets. Uh, on Mars, it's basically just a desert, right? 
Uh, so how are you going to build a rocket on Mars? How are you going to manufacture propellant and load it and make sure that, you know, we launch safely? You know, we have whole mission control setups with hundreds of people operating each launch here on Earth. You can't do that on Mars, really. Um, so the question becomes, do you send everything to Mars? You know, you probably have to send a rocket to Mars to bring them back home. Uh, but maybe you can manufacture the propellant on Mars instead of sending it there. Uh, because it'd, it'd be pretty difficult to send everything that you need to Mars just to bring people back. So that's why we talk about getting people back home is a little bit harder. It's really because you just don't have the infrastructure um, to have a launch facility on other planets right now that we do here on Earth. And hopefully this is a short-term problem. You know, yeah. Hopefully in a couple hundred years, we'll have all these facilities on other planets or, or moons or wherever we want to go. Right. But right now we don't. As you're talking, I'm... One of my favorite movies, recent movies, certainly um, fiction movies in this is The Martian. Mm -hmm. In fact, I loved um, it's a great movie. his uh, follow-up uh, book to that as well. But I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me to think about, one, the ship that he comes back in is yeah. already there. Yeah. And he's got a traverse to it. And it's, um, was it in a launch um, do you remember, was it in a, like a launch facility already, or was it just a freestanding ship and he just pushed the go button or somebody on earth pushed the go button and it yeah, launched? Yeah. I don't remember. I think in the Martian, it was a freestanding ship. Um, it might've been the one that they, I think that the way that the movie portrayed at least was it was actually the ship that they arrived in. Uh, but I do remember in the book, they, they said, we already have all the propellant loaded because he needed right. to steal some of the oxygen from the tank for something right. else. So they already had all the propellant there somehow, right. um, you know, assuming they made it from, from the Mars atmosphere, or maybe they brought it along and just had extra, but, uh, so yeah, much easier know, I, to solve these problems when you're an author, isn't it? Well, we'll just, <laughs> exactly. we'll just in, insert in, it. In Andy's defense, I have listened to a lot of his interviews. He, he does a lot of research to make sure these things are pretty feasible. And in my opinion, The Martian is probably the most realistic science fiction book I've ever read. So it's one of my favorites as well. Well, for sure. Nobody could listen to that much disco. Like I completely bought into <laughs> that evaluation. It's just not possible. True, true. The humor in it was so good. Like I just went along with the science. Seems, seems plausible. Why not? Yeah, just, you yeah. know, just roll with it. Um, it, his, the way that he, um, the drama, and I'll talk about this later or have ask you about it later, the drama about what was going on at earth that, um, uh, the mission commander had to manage the PR problem, the, yeah, yeah. the expectations with the other crews. How do we, can we save this guy? What, you know, just the ethical stuff that comes into that. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautifully played. Um, and then on the other side of it, Mars itself, but as you were, or, you know, the, the situation there, I, it didn't occur to me until you were just now talking about why didn't I think it was suspicious, not so much about the propellant, that wouldn't have been obvious to me, but just to have this ship, why do we need all the infrastructure on Earth to launch it? If it can just yeah. sit out in the middle of a desert for years, or some period of time and yeah. launch. And it's, you know, you got a pretty good expectation that it's going to be just fine. Well, then why don't we just have them sitting out in the Great Salt Lake or, you know, some True. some island ready to go? Uh, I don't know. True. Anyway. I, to be fair, I do think we overdo it a bit. 
I shouldn't say that we don't overdo it on earth, but in the name of safety, we have the ability to have all this extra infrastructure and all these extra people monitoring it. Um, when to be honest, rockets are, are getting much more automated and, uh, you know, you don't really need a pilot to fly a rocket at all. Um, right. So I, I think that we could, we don't really need that much infrastructure for it to launch something from Mars. Uh, it's more just how do you get the rocket there and make sure that it's inspected and everything is is ready to go. All the systems are functioning. Uh, on Earth, we have pretty sophisticated systems to do that that just don't don't exist on Mars right now. Right. I think it's a and maybe other space administrations will. Um, I don't want to say value human life less. That's the wrong way to phrase. It. I don't even mean it that way. I just mean <laughs> that. In all seriousness, I just mean that. Yeah, you know, yeah. when you first build something, you know, when we first built cars or we first built, like really for public consumption, we had these big, giant, super thick. We didn't have advanced plastics. We didn't have sure. advanced various polymers and material and all these other things. And so, if you don't start make, if you come to the rocket making party. 50 yeah. years, 100 years later with the advances in automation, the advances in um, material science and propellant and all mm -hmm. these other things, well, that you don't have to start with that. You, you build on that 60 or 80 year history of test pilots and then low earth orbit and then lunar projects or whatever. And so it, it allows you a lot more freedom. I do think though that to your point, uh, my dad worked in the for or in the space administration, both on shuttle and on station for oh, probably 40 something years. Yeah. We met a lot of the astronauts. One of the things I was talking to James Garvin about the other day was it felt like of my our neighbor in California was the chief test pilot for NASA at the time. His name is Don Malik. Okay. And Don wow. would tell stories about Chuck Yeager and yeah. Joe Walker and you know the X2 pilots and some of these people, most of whom we don't know because they were killed in the 50s. Yeah. They survive career, they survive all these other things, and then they, the ejector doesn't work right. Like yep. things we take for granted now. One of the most dangerous it's, professions for sure. Test, for test sure. Pilots, yeah. It's just, just, um, and they're just crazy. It was just kerosene and go, you know, yep. let's do this. Um, but anyway, so we came through that rough era it's still rough i mean we're still stra literally strapping rockets on our backs and taking off but the but the evolution and the safety especially you know we had the disasters during the first manned space program and then the two shuttle challenges and so i at least in america at least in the west we'd rather have a safety that we don't need for that one in a million time exactly as opposed to um not I mean, yeah. we do, we've paid the price for that, right? And I know you know that. I do think, though, like in the way of all things, I I was thinking the other day, I was watching this car go down the road. I, I don't know if it's the smart car or whatever it is. It's the size of a skateboard. <laughs> it's, the, you know, it's it's smaller than the hovercraft that Biff used in Back to the oh. Future. And I'm like, how can that possibly be safe? How can that possibly yeah. absorb the energy? If so anyone we, hits you, you're done, yeah. <laughs> you're done. If a bicycle hits you, you're yeah. in traction. <laughs> But we just get used to, and then we as a public accept a certain level of risk, and that's mm -hmm. um, you know that's just the way that it is. So I'm it's sure that will be the same in uh, space. Yeah, that's going to be one of the biggest questions for sure. Is like you said, there's going to be more risk launching people back to Earth from other places in the solar system than there is launching from Earth to those places, and it's going to be up to the administrations or the governments, the companies, whoever it is, to decide what that level of risk. Is. And of course, there's some groups who have 
propose just sending people to Mars and not offering them a return trip back, right? Yeah, why not? I don't lend a whole lot of credibility to to those ideas because you know I think the I don't think it would go over well um, right. around the world <laughs> if people realized there's a mission launching everyone basically to their deaths. Uh, even if people signed up for it, I still don't think it would be a success um, from a PR standpoint. But it's going to be different levels of risk. It'll be really interesting to see you know, yeah. who makes those decisions and how they do it. Well, we've done this for all of human history to one degree or the other. Load them up in the whale-skinned uh, yeah. you know, yeah. rowboat and head off from shore into the Arctic or out of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic or wherever we go. And in the beginning, very many of them did not come back, but they were all willing for whatever reason to take a shot, you know? To be honest, I, yeah, I feel a little bad saying it, but I think that at some point you have to take that step. Like it's never going to be perfectly safe. There's always going to be some level of risk that's not acceptable to someone, but right. at some point you got to take the the jump. Otherwise you're going to, you know, stay here and be stagnant. Right. Well, we always do. There are always people that yeah. will. Let me ask you this about astronauts before we dive into um, uh -huh. Moxie and some of that stuff. When I was a kid, it felt like most of the astronauts or many of those in the astronaut program, certainly the commanders, the primary people were military, certainly yeah. Air Force, something like that. Um, and now when I came back from the human to Mars, it wasn't just that the um, the physiology of people changed. For example, it was if you were around NASA in the '60s, probably not a lot of women astronaut, yeah. um, people of color in the astronaut program, et cetera. If they were, it was uh, um, uh, it was unusual, extremely unusual in the in the higher military forces period, you know, compared to certainly to today. And when I was at Humans to Mars, one of the things that was really, there were a couple things that were really cool. One, this was a very diverse community. It mm -hmm. was every color, every gender, many tongues. Um, the second thing that was remarkable was, and maybe this is my naivete, I heard what I wanted to hear, certainly possible, but I didn't feel like that. Nobody was there, and I've said this before on my show, saying, look, I am part of this particular community or uh, in terms of um, my ethnicity or my sexuality or my uh, uh, gender or whatever. It was, we're excited to be part of this program, whether I was yeah. a civilian astronaut, a, a retired astronaut, a current astronaut, or a scientist related to the program. Like, it, it was like, I don't know, it was a remarkable, it was so um unusual that it stood out by its absence so i i dug that but the the third thing was how many not military background sort of that that test pilot raw background there's scientists there they're right. you know geologists and archaeologists and chemical engineers and material scientists mental health experts like all of these diverse unusual like like a crew from Star Trek, not a sure. crew from NASA 1960. Do you feel or find that that's becoming more and more norm? Or did I just get a little sliver that wasn't representative? No, of the no, whole? I think so. I think so. so. Military does still dominate the new astronaut classes. I still think like two thirds, maybe a little bit more of, of new astronauts in the past, you know, 20 years uh, have a military background. Um, but I don't think it's for the same reasons. Like you said, mm -hmm. back in the uh, 60s, 70s, maybe even the 80s, 
uh, it's because they were they were literally flying um, spacecraft and they wanted uh, test pilots for that. But now I think that they value the military experience more for just having operational experience, understanding you know the language that you need on a, a high stress mission, being able to handle stressful scenarios. You learn a lot of that in the military. So I think it's more just that skill set. Um, and yeah, the the lack of diversity in the astronaut corps uh, from before. I think was really a symptom of a lack of diversity in the military. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're recruiting from a group that's doesn't have a lot of diversity, you're not going to have a lot of diversity. Right. But the astronaut corps has really made a big a big stride for increasing that lately. And I, I think to your point, there's definitely a lot more scientists involved in the astronaut corps now. People from more diverse backgrounds, and that really started with the shuttle era. Uh, my my graduate school advisor Jeff Hoffman, who was an astronaut um, for the shuttle. He was an astrophysicist, so he, he didn't have any military background. He's actually a professor. He's an academic when he got selected. And uh, he always says he didn't think he could be an astronaut because he wasn't military. And then the shuttle happened. And suddenly they said, we're going to have a pilot on the shuttle, but we have all these other seats. We, we want to fill them with people that can do science up in space. Right. And he said, all right, I think this is my chance. And so he put in his application and, um, you know, he's, he's amazing at everything he does. So, of course, he got selected. Right. And uh, that's really when we saw a huge influx of scientists into the astronaut corps. And it, it's persisted even after the shuttle was retired uh, 10 or so years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's been great to see. And sometimes people do ask me or, you know, I just hear the conversation a lot. What degree should I go get if I want to be an astronaut? Um, and I've witnessed astronauts answer this question live at a lot of conferences as well. And the answer is always just do whatever interests you or whatever you're good at. You know, it really helps if you're in a STEM field, of course. So if you're doing something science or engineering, um, but they need geologists, they need mechanical engineers, they need, like you said, uh, chemical engineers, they need astrophysicists. Um, there's a huge range within the astronaut corps. It's not like they only hire aerospace engineers or something like that. So I think that's great. Brings a lot of different perspectives to the missions. And, and I think to your point, whatever it is that you do, be be world class at it. If you're world class, people hire you for your talent, not just your passion and your enthusiasm, which is important. Yep. But your but your talent. Many times on the show, we've talked about that guy who won uh, all the gold medals, Michael Phelps. Yeah, yeah. And there's this there's this perception that he beat everybody by a body length. Many uh-huh. times he beat him by a butterfly wing. If you add up the distance that he beat the world's best, yeah, all together. It's not very much, but mm-hmm. it, but everybody remembers him. Who finished second? I don't know. The yeah, guy who got in trouble and somewhere <laughs> or this thing or whatever. We don't remember. We remember that he won. And I'm sure his coach said, look, you know, here's where you are in the leaving the platform. Here's where you are in your spin kicks. Here's where you are. Like in some of these things, you're not that great. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But in this thing, you're the best in the world breathing or your strategy or whatever be world-class at that, you win all the gold medals. And I got to believe it's the same. If you're a geology geologist, we're going to need, especially if we're doing these long-term space missions mm-hmm. where we're going to live for a while and to ship only material and then wait for it to send the response back as opposed to doing real experiment, not real, but in-person yeah. hybrid experiments, both with the machines and with people, that's the future of this before we start colonizing and so we're going to need that whole range of people, including, I think, um, coming out of COVID, where we see long-term isolation, 
people that are have the ability, even if it's not their primary, their secondary, to have some sort of psychology or mental health skill with for themselves and for their fellow astronauts. Oh, I agree. I think one of the biggest we're kind of going off on a little tangent here, but that's all right. Uh, one of the one of the biggest issues that I think with sending people to Mars, it's not, you know, not even can we get them back to Earth. It's not can they survive on the surface? Can they grow food? You know, of course we'll need a botanist there, um, like Mark Watney. But it's actually the um, psychology of it, the, the mental health of the crew. You know, like if I was to take you and and introduce you to three strangers or five strangers, and then mm-hmm. lock you in a small metal box with them for nine months and send you out into space with with not really any distractions, um, are you guys all going to be okay? Or are you going to go crazy and uh, you know hate each other? You you have to not only be okay, you have to function well with each other because your lives depend on it. Um, it takes nine months to get to Mars. Then you have your mission and then it takes nine months back and there's not a lot to look at or do in between. So I think that the crew dynamics and the psychology of it is uh, one of the biggest unknowns for these yeah. missions. It, it will be similar to what they do for um, submarines, although relatively yeah. speaking, uh, nuclear subs have a tremendous amount of space compared to a spaceship going to another planet. So it is... Um, we have, and that's another reason why we probably draw on military. Is these are people that have been in mm-hmm. high stress, highly exactly. isolated, stacked three or four tall in a deal. Everybody's got to share the bathroom, and everybody yeah. knows if the spaghetti's been served today, and you go into the restroom after the Swede, it's not mm-hmm. going to be a good day for you. You better get in there. I think I think it's fascinating. Um, we'll we'll see. I am curious though to talk about. Um, Moxie. So how I came across you was this idea of um, kind of one of the potential solutions to this getting people back is uh, the propellant needed. So in order to, you know, for us to launch from the earth, we need a certain amount of propellant. We, we, we make that. There's a cost associated with that. Mm-hmm. But if we need that same amount, atmosphere notwithstanding, smaller planet notwithstanding, but if we just sort of use that as a general guideline, if we needed one on Earth to call it propellant, one propellant on Earth, we need approximately one on Mars. Maybe it's less, but let's just do this ratio. But I've got to propel the propellant to Mars, so there's that complexity. I've got to store it until I need it. It's got to have high integrity, be the efficacy has to be just as good. Like it's all of those things that I need here that I've gotten these, we just talked about highly monitored, safe, um, frequently checked environments. It's probably going to be less than that there. Uh, and it's got to survive the journey. I've watched a number of these um, landings, just curiosity and perseverance were pretty violent, much less yeah. basically shooting stuff into the planet before that. So it's got to survive that. Propellant was, you know, right. was meant to explode. So that's, that's also right. a little scary. Let's let's drop the Molotov cocktail from the top of the building. <laughs> Tom, you catch it. Exactly. If you don't, we're gonna you're gonna have warm feet like that. So we're gonna do that, and then we got to launch it um, back. And I thought, well, yeah, that sounds like there's a lot of. Um, I, I just feel like it's Locking one of those far side cartoons, you know. Wait, the good news is we made it to Mars, right? And you see in the distance your rocket ship on fire. Exploding. Bad news is, uh, and we got some downtime. We get to use some PTO on the company. The downside is, so Moxie, as I, why don't you describe to my listeners what Moxie is and how it 
relates to this challenge we're talking about? Yeah, so Moxie is an instrument that's on the Perseverance rover right now. So it's on Mars and the rover is just carrying it around. It's about the size of a, a toaster oven or something like that. So it's, um, you know, weighs, I think, 15 kilograms. You could hold it in your hands, but it's basically a little oxygen production machine. And so it uh, takes the atmospheric carbon dioxide on Mars and converts it into oxygen. Mm-hmm. And Mars uh, has almost all of its atmosphere is composed of CO2, which is much different from Earth. You know, we talk about high CO2 levels on Earth. Well, on Mars, 96% of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. So it's pretty much everything floating around you are CO2 molecules. And if we can take off the the carbon atom, we can get O2 or oxygen. So that's what Moxie is doing. And the reason that we have it on the rover is that was basically the only ride that we could get. Um, So, you know, NASA wanted to prove that we could make oxygen on Mars from the atmosphere. There was a slot on the rover for it. So MIT and JPL put in a proposal for that, you know, like maybe even 10 years ago now Hmm. um, and won the proposal. And then we developed Moxie and, and sent it to Mars. So it's been sitting on Mars, cranking out some oxygen. How, so help us to get, so you've given us the physical size of it. How, What do you just like, you know, I know what uh, Andy Weir would write, you know, you'd have like your, your oxygen collector and it'd be really cool. And there'd be color and drama and Matt could walk by and check (laughs) on it and see what was going on. If you've got this, first of all, back to the propellant idea, how do you get that box to survive the impact and just make sure that it's, it's got its integrity. And then once it starts working, how do you know it's working? How do you measure it? Yeah, yeah. So the the surviving part is really interesting. On, on pretty much all space missions, you have. Well, let's talk about Mars missions specifically. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, Mars is a terrible place to to be as a human. Uh, if you were to stand outside on Mars, you wouldn't want to be, do that. Right. Really low atmospheric pressure. Really low temperatures in general. Uh, obviously, the air would uh, kill you. You'd suffocate. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of of things that would go wrong. And so we think about sending something to Mars, it has to survive the Mars environment. And that's true. So we have to make sure it has heaters, which it does, and that it's, it's properly insulated, um, and it can withstand the low pressures. But really, the hard part with most missions is the launch on the rocket and the landing. Mm-hmm. Because during launch, it's a really crazy environment. You, you know, the, it's a giant rocket that's launching you, you're basically igniting explosives beneath you to launch yourself into the air. So there's a lot of shaking, a lot of shocks. Um, it, you even have to worry about, uh, you know, hitting the wrong frequency and that damaging your parts or ruining your parts. Uh, so, and then landing is kind of the opposite. Uh, you know, you're coming in and you have to slow down really fast. You have massive decelerations, maybe some shock impacts when you land. And so you have to make sure your equipment can hold up to it. I mean, so the way we do it is there's, there's just a lot of tests that we run here on earth. NASA has a ton of test facilities for these things that we've been using. And you, you basically put it through uh, shock tests, we call them vibration tests, acoustic tests to make sure it can withstand the sound levels even. Um, and, and once we put it through all of these different tests, then we, we are reasonably sure it'll survive the launch. And so Moxie's built with, um, you know, it's basically like a rugged box. Uh, we have all the core technology inside packaged up, and then we just smashed a bunch of insulation in there. So it, it really can't move much. It's got a lot of <laughs> shock suppression, basically. And uh, it's really hard to break it. So we were happy that it survived. I didn't uh, think about the acoustic. How does how does the acoustic, I, I, I get now that I'm thinking about it, I could see that. But 
How does the acoustic yeah. range, um, not just Moxie, but I suppose all the components of the yeah. rover would have to be protected. It wouldn't even occur to me that that's something to protect from. Yeah, you know, I have a friend who has a PhD in acoustics engineering, and uh, he'd be able to answer that. I won't okay. pretend to know it, okay. but I did get to witness an acoustics test at um, a NASA site when I happened to be touring it. They had a mm -hmm. SpaceX um, payload or, or Dragon capsule, and they were doing an acoustic test. And it's just, just this massive room, I kid you not, with just a ton of speakers, right. and they just blast noise um, at your instrument. And of course, sound is like a propagation of molecules, right? So something is physically moving when there's when sound is reaching you. And if you have enough of that, it can damage things, you know, right. um, the sound waves can. That's my understanding of it. Right. I hope not wildly. I'll, I grew up I'll in the era of metal. metal. I'm well aware of uh, <laughs> exactly. some of the things that the it can damage. It can cause. <laughs> yeah. so, Emotionally, physically, metaphorically, yeah. Yeah, I know. Rocket launches are really, um, you know, really loud. So you have right. to be careful that that doesn't damage the stuff inside the rocket. Yeah, it's no Black Sabbath concert, but I'm tracking with you. <laughs> um, so, so now it lands, it's safely, it gets yeah. to Mars or wherever its destination in, is, it lands. And so what, does the rover just reach up and push its moxie button? Or how does the, does it, is it removed from the rover? Does it live on the rover? How does this thing yeah. get started? It, it sits basically in the belly of the rover. So it, it gets carried around with the rover. Um, the <laughs> rover, it was pretty interesting. The day after we landed, it turned on some of its cameras and took some pictures right away so that we could see if, you know, if we were upside down, that'd be a, a bad thing if the if the sky was down. Right. Um, just to get our bearings a little bit and see if there's any big rocks in the area we need to avoid. Right. And then it starts, we do this whole like commissioning week where we turn on one system at a time. It sends its data back to earth. Everyone looks at it, make sure it's okay. It took a long time to actually drive. Um, but then we do all the instrument checkouts where Moxie is one of the instruments on board. And then we turned on, you know, our heaters and then we sent data, temperature data back to earth. And, and, you know, me and the rest of the Moxie team were looking at the temperature and making sure it matched what we thought. And then we turned on our pump and measured how fast it was spinning. We turned on the oxygen sensors and made sure they were working. So it's really like you, you turn on one knob, you wait a day for all the data to come back. You look at it, then you send commands to turn on another knob and then you wait for it to come back takes a long time um but we did it very safe you know that's very intentional if you just turn everything on at once there's a chance you could do damage to it and there's no one there on mars to fix it so that would be a you know a waste of 100 million dollars you have to be it's worth spending a couple of weeks turning it on slowly right how cool would that be though terror aside from it failing you come in you check your checklist your calendar turn knob one yeah on <laughs> exactly come back tomorrow we're done everybody back tomorrow the check status stuff, of knob yeah. one turn yeah. on knob two um, you know, behind the scenes info now about yeah how we how we spend our day <laughs> i don't want to yeah, i i'm sure there's a lot going on so once it gets operational and uh -huh. it's and it's uh riding with the rover um you mentioned earlier mars is really cold um it doesn't i don't know that that comes through in uh the for anybody that's casually come across fictional or non-fictional comments about mars where it doesn't at least for me didn't particularly resonate because the sun's so bright and it looks like the nevada desert and um whatever how does it how does a machine like that before we get into the actual production how yeah. does it operate within those 
extremes because that I, I'm assuming in the we're going to talk about electrolysis in a minute, but that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it warms it, it heats itself. So you've got this double, almost like this double jeopardy. One, I need to protect it from the cold. Two, I've got it while uh, Percy's crawl, the the rover's crawling around Mars. I need to make sure that it's not yeah. shaking loose or whatever. And three, it's going to generate heat, I'm assuming. And how do I have enough insulation to protect from the cold, but not so much that it sweats itself? Exactly, yeah. So how do you do that? Uh, yeah, all right, these are all good questions. So for context for the listeners, Mars, when I say Mars is really cold, um, I think it averages about negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. And that's oh. kind of hard for us to really imagine, but you right. know, if you think about negative 10, you, you do not want to be outside in that. Negative right. 80 uh, is, is pretty brutal. Right. Um, but there's huge swings. So it gets all the way down to like past negative 200 Fahrenheit, which we can't really even comprehend what that would feel like. But if you're on the equator uh, in the summer on Mars, it can be 70 degrees Fahrenheit um, just just on the equator. And actually, the interesting thing that I, I learned recently is um, the Mars atmosphere. It's, it's a lot less dense than the Earth. And so it acts differently. Uh, if you were standing on the equator, your feet would be at 70 degrees Fahrenheit but your head would actually be below freezing point. It'd be like 30 degrees. And so if you lay down, you feel like you're in the summer, but if you stand up, your head feels like it's in the winter. And uh, that kind of that kind of blew my mind a little yeah. bit, um, how that works. So anyway, this, that's what I mean by cold. Um, yeah, Moxie operates uh, really hot, actually. We have, to, we have to operate at about 800 degrees celsius sorry to switch uh units no, that's okay yeah on you but um we always talk about celsius or kelvin with moxie so right. about 800 degrees celsius so really really hot it's essentially a, a high temperature oven and so we don't care too much about you know if we're at uh you know the equator or not on mars we're gonna have to heat up several hundred degrees anyway and we have a lot of insulation to keep that heat in um, but one of the major concerns that the Rover has with the Moxie team, right? So there's, there's this Moxie team that I'm on it. And then there's mm -hmm. the rest of the Rover. Uh, they all look at us and say, are you going to melt us down today? Yeah, right. right. Like what if there's a hole in your insulation? Um, you know, are you going to melt the, the, the camera that's sitting next door to Moxie? So we had to do a lot of, a lot of testing qualification testing here on earth to prove that, uh, you know, the heat was going to be contained and we had proper, proper, uh, basically conduction and convection pathways to get all that heat out safely, uh, to the Mars environment when we radiated away, not to the other instruments where it would melt it. Um, so that, that was a big focus for, you know, a couple of years was making sure all the thermal pathways were, uh, locked in. And essentially what happens is when we're, when it's time to cool down or we stop consuming the heat in the reaction, um, there's this cooling loop that runs underneath Moxie and it actually runs throughout the Rover. It's like a little river of mm -hmm. cooling fluid to cool down all the instruments. And then it, uh, ends up in a radiator that basically is a big surface area, thin like thing that just kind of radiates the heat away to Mars. So, um, that's how we get rid of the heat and so to get the heat. We have heaters. You're running around Mars with basically you've swallowed the sun. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I didn't even think about that. I, I just imagined sort of the team as the team. But, you know, if I, my analogy is to a sports team, you've got, you know, in football, you got the offense, defense, yeah, special exactly. teams, you know, all these other groups. And you're Coaches like, look, for everyone. Yeah, right. Don't, special teams. Don't you screw this up for us. We got a, you know, we got a three point lead here. You better, you know, exactly. co cover your punt or whatever. I think, I think people were like, 
you know, drawing lots, like who had to, who had to sit next to Moxie and who could get on the other side of us on the Rover where the, the prime real estate was. Yeah. So once it gets going, um, this toaster size thing to do these experiments, how much oxygen is it actually making? Does it take a day to make a certain amount? Is it a, like, what's the, is the goal just to see that it can perform these chemical experiments or is it the volume, the quality? How does it, what is it that you're looking at and how much does it make? Yeah. So the goal of Moxie is to make, uh, is to prove that we can make oxygen and make it at a high enough purity level that we can use it as propellant and for breathing. So, so there's a purity requirement and we just have to prove it works. Um, the idea, of course, being that when we send humans to Mars, we'll send a much bigger version of Moxie. That, that's the whole basis of this. So Moxie's a technology prototype demonstration on a small right. scale. But we make about six grams per hour of oxygen. And that's pretty meaningless, at least to me when I first heard it. Right. I don't really know what that means. Um, but that's about how much a small tree would make um, you know, through photosynthesis. Right. And that's also about how much a, a dog breathes. So, okay. you know, we could keep a dog alive on Mars uh, if we wanted to with Moxie. Not not quite a human. They right. slowly suffocate. Um, so, yeah, it's a very small scale. And that's intentional, of course, so we can fit inside of the rover. Uh, we've made oxygen nine times on Mars now, I believe. We get to run about once a month, uh, oh, maybe okay. a little bit less than that. And so, uh, you know, so here's the other thing. I already, I already said people wanted to stay away from Moxie because we're hot. We right. also consume a lot of power with all this heating. Mm-hmm. And so when it's a mock, when it's Moxie's turn to run on Mars, everything else has to shut down. You know, the camera shut down, the rover can't drive, all the other instruments can't do their science. And so again, you know, we're all one big team, but I, I do joke all the time that Moxie is definitely the least popular uh, team within the team because everyone goes, oh, it's a Moxie day. Right. Uh, I guess I guess we'll just go home. We we can't do anything. We're not going to get anything interesting from Mars today because Moxie's taken up all the power, and so that's why they only let us go about once a month because the rover literally comes to a stop, powers down most of its systems, and then Moxie, you know, ramps up, and then we make oxygen for a couple of hours, measure it, measure its purity, and then shut down, charge up the batteries again, and the rover kind of comes back to life and can keep driving the next day. How does that translate into, um, I have two questions out of that. One, how could we use that on Earth? But in, uh-huh. for Mars, for big Moxie, BM, yeah. um, do we make a Moxie farm? How do we do, do, do which seems to then necessitate um, a giant solar or some other yeah. power source. And so it feels like in order to get to um, a meaningful amount of let's just say propellant first, and then maybe in the future life support or wh- whatever the order mm-hmm. of those things are, you have to build this infrastructure in order to, um, in order to, you have to build like the pre-infrastructure before you can get to the big moxie oxygen making right. uh, infrastructure. How do, you, how do you scale that up in your mind? How does yeah. that, how does that play out? Yeah, so I realized we've sort of been dancing around the the topic, and I haven't really explicitly stated what why we want to make oxygen on Mars. Mm-hmm. We've kind of mentioned it. Most people, when when I say that you know I work on something that makes oxygen on Mars, they for astronauts, they say, "Oh, okay, so astronauts can breathe, right? right? We need oxygen, and that's true. We'll let the astronauts breathe with some of the oxygen from the bigger Moxie." But the main reason, which we've sort of stated, is that it's for propellant, and the idea being 
it's really hard, like you said, to send propellant from Earth to Mars that we're then going to burn to bring astronauts back home to Earth um, for a lot of reasons. You know, you have to launch, you have to propel that propellant, which make, means you have to do more rocket launches, which costs a lot of money. You have to keep it uh, from boiling off or having problems in its nine month journey. You have to land these explosives, these really heavy propellants on Mars safely. And it's really hard. So we just want to make it on Mars. Just send an empty tank to Mars, which is really a lot easier and fill it up with oxygen. Um, and again, people don't always think of oxygen as a, a propellant, right, but right. that's because on earth we have a fuel, we have gasoline, we hold a lighter to it, it ignites. It's using all the oxygen in the air. Right. We don't have that on Mars or in space. So we have to carry the oxygen in a separate tank. So again, that's where oxygen fits into all this. Um, so to scale it up, uh, to answer your actual question, it's um, that was actually the focus of my, my PhD dissertation was how do you take MOXIE and make it you know, 300 times bigger or whatever to support a human mission. So um, it's, it's hard to answer uh, concisely. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have given me a PhD. Um, <laughs> but the basis is you can basically, you can make a modular system. So you can take MOXIE and make it a bit bigger, you know, maybe five or 10 times bigger, and then just stack 10 or 20 or 30 of those next to each other. And they can all produce oxygen that you combine and funnel into a tank. And, you know, the engineering works out pretty well, actually, for um, scaling it in order of magnitude like that and then mm -hmm. stacking them in modules. Well, right now, it, you know, it runs off of the battery yeah. and solar infrastructure of um, Perseverance. I'm wondering when they do it, when we go to and I like that idea that you can incrementally grow. We don't mm -hmm. have to go to 300 times. Maybe the the next version is. We bring with us and whatever the next rover is, and we assemble 10 of these things. And, they're, and they, right. they're, they're, they have their own solar source, and they have their own whatever, and, and away they go. That's got to, I, I suppose your team or, or engineers related to your team are also thinking about, okay, so if we extrapolate, given the technology that we know, the amount of fuel that we would need, propellant or whatever oxygen we would need is yep. to complete these needs, I have to have a supporting infrastructure. Either I'm shutting down the rover every other day, which mm -hmm. already, you know, the rest of the team now is irritated with Team Moxie. Yep. Or how do how do I do this where I have a more permanent situation? When you guys sit there and think about that, it seems like you you've now got another engineering problem because I got to get that stuff there yeah. to assemble to do this. How, is it a diminishing return or how does this yeah. work? <laughs> yeah. So for context, it scales really favorably. Um, Meaning, you know, Moxie takes up, I don't know, it, it sits in the belly of the rover and it takes up a decent amount of space to make 300 times as much oxygen as Moxie. You just need a Moxie the size of the rover. So oh. we're not talking about like a building, right? Um, it actually scales really favorably where if you double the size of Moxie, you more than double the oxygen it can produce, gotcha. if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, it, need, it, it would be about a thousand kilograms, which is about what the rover weighs, a full scale system. Um, it'd be, you know, a couple of cubic meters, which is, you know, about the size of a car maybe. Um, right. so that fits with the Rover. Um, it would take a lot of power though. So power is the main issue with Moxie, right. like you're saying. So it's not that big. We can land it. It's not going to, and it would probably just sit on the surface. It wouldn't have to drive around or anything. It could just sit there and make oxygen, um, right. over time. Uh, but it needs a lot of power. And so there's two main ways to make power on Mars, uh, nuclear and solar 
uh, with solar, you know, I think we saw some, we keep talking about the Martian because it's a great example. Right. We saw some of the solar panels be covered with dust, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of clips of Matt Damon blowing yeah. up the solar panels. Yeah. That's a real problem on Mars. That's very accurate. You know, there's dust storms all the time. It's a very dusty place and dust landing on your solar panels reduces their effectiveness. Um, so I'm personally in favor of uh, nuclear power um, to avoid some of that uh, operational complexity involved with solar but honestly it's a big debate uh in the power community for mars specifically is is which of those two do you go go with and they're both viable options um you just have to get the system set up nuclear's come in so many conversations today it seemed like um it was a conversation it wasn't even allowed into the conversation 10 years ago yeah um, there was a lot of emotion justified or unjustified there's a lot of emotion around it mm. now as we're in this other a uh, significant and serious conversation about climate change. It is um, as we're pursuing all sorts of sustainable, it has come back into yeah. when you just think about the amount of watt created for effort expended. Mm -hmm. um, and if you treat it as a safety and storage conversation, because uh, there are countries doing this, um, not just the U.S., but um, all over the world that are just – you know, it, anyway, without going too far down that rabbit yeah. hole, it's back in the conversation in a yeah. significant way. I hadn't heard it being uh, proposed this way, but that makes sense. But that, but that seems like that introduces even more um, challenges. How do we get a nuclear power supply sure. off of the Earth to this planet and just get it? You know, it just seems like um, complexity of complexity. Yeah. So the the way to to do it. NASA has been working with the Department of Energy, the DOE, for the past few years on this system called Kilo Power. Okay. Um, and it's a small nuclear fission device, uh, specifically geared towards space space missions. Right. Um, and the idea is it's it's a compact compact fission device that produces something like 10 kilowatts. So it's kind of small scale power, but it would work for Mars missions or other space missions. It, it would provide around the right amount of power without having to set up this huge nuclear plant, right? Like we see on earth and have, you know, people watching it to make sure that we don't have, you know, overheating systems or anything like right. that that could react, result in a meltdown. It avoids a lot of that um, by being pretty much a self-contained self-regulating system. Um, you might ask, why don't we do that on earth? Like why yeah. don't aren't these things everywhere on earth? Well, it's really expensive. Um, the technology is still in development. They've done tests on a, well, one kilowatt unit, I believe. So now they're trying to scale it up to 10. So mm -hmm. I do think it's going to be a real technology. This isn't the the whole, you know, nuclear is it, it's just 20 years away and then we'll right. we'll be able to power the earth like we've been hearing for right. Or I you know what people always joke about with it. Um right. this is a real thing that's been tested and it's it's smaller scale. It's you know maybe practical for certain applications on earth, but I don't think it's going to solve the, the earth's energy problems on it right. by, by itself, but it's certainly good for space. So right. that's what I would, that's what I would recommend for Mars, um, is the kilo power system and they're, they're still working on it. Uh, but if not, you know, if that doesn't come to fruition or it ends up being too complicated, you can just send solar panels to Mars. For those of us that aren't familiar with the, this technology and the scale, it's ca a casual listening to this for someone like me would be like, why don't we make 10 million moxies? Yeah. Put them in a, you know, a remote island that we used to do nuclear testing in, or whatever, yeah. some some somewhere in the the airstream or whatever of the world, and start 
removing excess carbon from the world. So it's it yes, it creates oxygen, but mm -hmm. really its role in that case was I'm trying to remove something instead of its primary function is I'm trying to create something. It's just the scale so big that it's not even feasible. It's not that. Uh, it's more the concentration of carbon dioxide in the US atmosphere mm. uh, makes it difficult. But again, I'm realizing I, I didn't really explain how Moxie works with its electrolysis. So maybe I'll, I'll say that and then yeah. kind of say why it doesn't work okay. for Earth super well. Um, Moxie uses what's called solid oxide electrolysis to convert CO2 into oxygen. And most of us are familiar with electrolysis, uh, talking about water electrolysis, you know, where you uh, stick a battery underneath a glass of salt water and then stick two pencils in and you can, you can get electricity going between them that basically vaporizes the water into hydrogen and oxygen gas, you get bubbles. You know, we, we've done this as like a chemistry experiment, uh, maybe in, in middle school or high school. Uh, it's pretty similar, but instead of electrolyzing water and splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen, we're electrolyzing CO2 and splitting it into carbon monoxide and oxygen, CO and O2. Um, the way we do it though, uh, with a gas instead of water as a liquid is we basically uh, have to heat it up really hot, 800 degrees Celsius. You do apply electricity, you, you apply a voltage to it. So, you know, this is an electrical reaction. Um, electrochemical reaction is what, what we classify it as. And then there's this thing called a uh, an electrolyte, a ceramic electrolyte. We use this uh, Scandia stabilized zirconia, but it's basically just a thin wafer of ceramic material with a coating on the top and the bottom, mm -hmm. and it facilitates the reaction. So little CO2 molecules float over this wafer. They attach to the coating on top, and when you heat it up and you know shock it with some electricity, it splits into mm -hmm. CO and O2. That's how it works. Okay. Um, the O2 can kind of travel through and then it, it purifies itself because it comes out the other side and the CO stays on top. So that's how we're splitting CO2 into, into CO and oxygen. You kind of need a mostly pure CO2 stream for this to be effective. So on Earth, if you were flowing Earth atmosphere through, you'd have a lot of oxygen, a lot of nitrogen going through and a tiny amount of CO2. Um, and while technically it could work, you know, this could be a carbon capture technology, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, Remember, we're heating this thing up to 800 degrees Celsius and we're applying a lot of electricity. And where's all that energy coming from? Well, you're probably like, you know, burning coal next door to power right. this thing, which is releasing more CO2 than the CO2 you're capturing. Right. So it would be difficult to make it a, a neutral technology, like right. a net neutral. Um, and that's, that's why I don't think that it would be the best option on Earth. Right. Obviously, and you could power it with renewable energy. So technically it could be right. net right. neutral, but I think there's more effective... Um, carbon removal strategies and we're and we're not you know in that scenario we're not looking for net neutral we're looking like we're looking for a thousand to one right if it, if, yeah. it, it, if it is a significant um uh carbon significant challenge uh, mm -hmm. that we're trying to overcome as the scientists are telling me then um i need something that's going to have a significant impact it doesn't make us make a lot of sense to spend a lot of time and energy building a this whatever the size of the infrastructure is only for it to be approximately a wash that doesn't yeah exactly seem like a, like and that's a, like that, best case that's if you hook it up to all renewable energy so right um yeah it's great for mars you know hopefully it'll help us get get people there and get them home safely but i think there's better technologies we can work on for earth well i know we're coming close to uh ending our conversation what like what are the next steps for moxie and where are whether it's moxie or other tech that you're working on what are some yeah. of the cool things um 
not just Moxie related that uh, that you envision, whether it's out of Perseverance or the next rover? Sure. So so Moxie, uh, you know, we're going to keep running it on Mars, but people will say, okay, you've already made oxygen what's the point in continuing to run it we're going to try and run in all the extreme uh, weather environments which um, i'm looking forward to so we're trying to find the coldest night in the middle of winter to run and see how it impacts performance the hottest day in summer we're also going to try and operate during a global dust storm um, to see if that impacts our filtration system when we're trying to pull in the atmosphere and so there's all these different extremes we're trying to really test it out at now to see what could go wrong in a future system. So that should be fun. Um, the rover is continuing to drive around, take really great pictures of Jezero Crater. We're learning a lot about the geology there. And I think, you know, a lot of people probably have heard there's been a lot of hype with the helicopter that's on the rover, uh, Ingenuity. And that's been a lot of fun to watch the progress of that as the little, the little drone helicopter takes flight next to the rover, takes pictures of the rover, kind of scouts ahead for it. Right. That's really a new era of um, ways to explore, uh, in space that I'm excited about because, you know, in the, in the past we've, we've done planetary flybys where we just send a probe and it snaps a picture of the planet. Then we got more sophisticated. We did orbiters that were taking images from above and we even landed stuff. And then we did rovers, which had wheels that could drive around. So I think the next iteration, you know, we're on to like phase five now of being able to fly around, um, other planetary bodies that have some sort of atmosphere like Mars. And that's pretty exciting. So I'm excited to see where that technology goes in the next couple of decades. We, we're so, at least for me, we're so accustomed to not just science fiction books, but the movies. Um, mm-hmm. Recently watched Dune um, again, the new yeah. Dune. Again. But my whole life since I was a kid, my dad was a big science fiction guy, read and watched. And so when you're, when you're talking about this experiment and this technology <clears throat> with the helicopter and with Moxie and the rover yeah. for that matter, Mm-hmm. It, we can almost be numb if we're not part of it. The level of engineering and science and almost miracle magic that has to happen in order to get it yeah. to this destination and then That's have it to do what it's supposed to do the way that it's been designed to do it and then to report intelligently um, and continuously and then to operate. We We just, I think, at least for me, don't appreciate um the level of complexity and but also the the 60 years or 100 years worth of um engineering that's that's been built on additively yeah. you know to to get here it's just unbelievable and we just say very casually you know we've got this helicopter flying around and how cool is that yeah. Yeah. we are literally flying around another celestial body even in a limited manner but it's it's, it's good um, to take a step back and realize that sometimes because you get so pulled into just the, you know, being on the operations team, you just get pulled into the everyday. Um, mm-hmm. And then every now and then I kind of shake myself and I realize the pictures I'm looking at are from another planet <laughs> and they were just taken like today. That's, that's wild. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, what haven't we covered that we should have, uh, if anything, for this conversation? Yeah, I think um, so a, a couple of things. One, I, I want to you made me think of this with your last comment, the okay. Rover. I want to say one more technology, yeah. that's kind of how the Rover is advancing. You know, we're not going to leave Rovers behind and just go to helicopters. Well, um, it depends on their attitude, but um, as long as they keep, <laughs> as long as we like them. Yeah. Uh, the Rover we've been testing out, uh, sort of a new technology on curiosity and on perseverance rovers where it can drive itself. And, you know, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners won't know this, but 
for all the rovers in the past, the way that we figured out how to drive around Mars, uh, we'd have the rover take a bunch of pictures of its surroundings, send them back to Earth, then people would look at it and like map out physically, like on a piece of paper on the computer, map out where we can drive without hitting rocks or falling into a hole or falling into a sand pit, right? Then they'd send those commands and then the rover would drive, you know, 20 feet, stop, take pictures, send it back. It was this incredibly slow and manual process. And of course, there's a time delay between the two and start back and forth that takes forever. But uh, very recently, we've been trying out this auto navigation, almost like, uh, you know, driverless cars, right? right? Similar technology where the rover can sense its surroundings, uh, recognize what a rock is, what a hole is, and smartly drive around those obstacles by itself. And I think that as we continue to test that technology and develop it, uh, it's going to completely change um, how much science return we can get out of rovers in the future. Because instead what? of driving, you know, 100 meters a day, maybe they can drive, um, you know, a couple of miles a day and cover 10 times the amount of ground or something like that. So I'm very excited about that. Um, one time technology has failed us is right as you said, here's the tech you glitched for five seconds. What specifically is <laughs> oh, no. so bizarre, but it, you're back. So you said, so we used to, we, you know, we drove 20 feet, we took the pictures, we did yeah. this other stuff and now we, and then you came back and said, and it's so oh. awesome. So what's that 10 seconds? <laughs> we're, we have, we have auto navigation now oh, that's, on the okay. rovers, similar to driverless, you know, driverless right. cars, where it can it can sense what it, what its surroundings are. So instead of taking photos and humans telling it where to go, right, it can tell itself where to go safely. Now, is it yeah. using like lidar, or is it navigating by the stars, or is it looking at a camera and saying, okay, these pixels are yeah. this is safe pixels, this is dangerous pixels? How's it doing it? I think it's a combination of systems, but I think one of I think the main system is. Um, image recognition right actually so i think it is taking its own photos and then identifying what is a rock right. uh, what is a sand pit what's a cliff i don't want to fall off right of, based on you know image recognition maybe some machine learning right um that it's done right so yeah it's uh pretty interesting we don't rely on it too much right now but it's in the testing phases which is cool i know underwater robots are going through the same sort of thing because yeah. they're you know when you're in that kind of environment gps isn't going to work you've got a it's a lot of image recognition there are other tools that come into that um but it is an area that looks uh pretty awesome and where that can help people is when we get in extreme environments even here on earth into caves or into where where i can't like a human, I have to look around me and make an assessment. I'm not doing it off of a satellite or whatever. And I have to learn in real time, make an educated guess, and then, yeah. you know, put my foot forward and, yep, that's good. And so for two two things happen then. One, I safely move. And two, I tell the database, these shadows and these circumstances were okay. And now I can keep building that database, not just for myself, but for future devices, robots, probes, whatever that come behind me and they can build on this database and continue to yeah. add to it. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty um, cool. The, the only other thing I wanted to say was, uh, I think <sighs> that often when, you know, when we're talking about space exploration like this, I've found that there's a, a couple types of people that might listen to this. Um, the first are people that love space, I think like, like you and I, mm -hmm. and, you know, so if someone says, why should we go to Mars? We don't really or like, because why wouldn't we? It's right. great. It's exciting. That's that's why we should. But there's another group of people that are very passionate um, about, 
you know, we should not be exploring. We should not be spending money on this. We should, we have problems here on earth that need to be solved. We should, um, it's, it's, uh, not right of us to be spending money exploring Mars or, or right. going other places. And, um, I always try and, and give some context for why I justify, you know, spending my career working on this mm-hmm. as I plan to. And that's for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, going to space is exciting. And I like to think of, um, you know, a future where, uh, we are a multi-planetary species and, and we really are starting to understand our place in the solar system in the universe. And I think that a lot of people get excitement about that. And it's, that, that's a good thing. You know, if there's a future that's more exciting, that's more optimistic, um, I think we should go for that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of just a basic emotional response to it that mm-hmm. I think does have justification. But the other one is people don't realize the money that we invest in space exploration has huge returns for Earth. And this is what I gave a, a TED talk on um, last year was how investing in space really benefits people on Earth and helps solve some of those problems here on Earth that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, I think somebody did a study and every dollar spent on space technology has a $17 return that directly benefits people on Earth, whether it's, you know, better solar panels for renewable energy to fight climate change or, um, you know, life support systems that hospitals use, pollution control helping, you know, firefighting equipment that's developed for space, but that helps firefighters on Earth. There's just this incredibly long list of spin-off technologies yeah. that have come out of space research that we wouldn't have if we didn't try and go to the moon or we didn't try and go to Mars. Um, and people overlook that all the time. So I think not only does, you know, going into space give us a more exciting future and something that unites people, unites nations, uh, which we need more than ever right now, it also helps us solve our problems on Earth you know, that, that people think that we should be focusing on. And I agree. So I just want to leave people with, with that kind of thought. We're not trying to escape earth by sending people to Mars and leave our problems behind. Um, it's actually helping us solve our problems on earth too. I completely agree. There's, there's so many advances we've made in plastics and material science yeah. and navigation in radiation shielding in, um, we had uh, Shauna Pandya on the other day, and she was talking about the application of augmented and virtual reality within the medical field, because you have to have these things. Um, the conversation we had was around, uh, you know, medical emergencies if yeah. you're if you're traveling and all of these other things, and so all of this science that goes into that can also be applied to that um, mountaintop hiker in Peru or a. Uh, a community stranded in the middle of whether it's a pandemic or a weather event or all like in all of these ways, these technologies that are being researched for these pioneering extreme environments make yeah. their way, most of them, if not all of them, one way or the other into everyday human life. And it is exactly. it's how we're changing the world. We're changing communities in Africa. We're changing communities in Southeast Asia because we're able to take these technologies, the world gets a hold of them. And then we're able to apply them in a in a particularly meaningful way. Yeah, and it is important, obviously, to directly address the problems. You know, if right. if poverty is an issue, we should directly address it. But right. there, historically, we have proven there is extreme value in exploring new technologies like space exploration that then benefit you know poverty in a way that we didn't expect that we didn't think of by directly addressing it. So there's value in both approaches. So I, I think we should continue doing both. Yeah. Well, I want to help save your team some time when you're looking for the coldest places on Earth. Um, one of the easy places to get a good sense of that is Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I was driving yeah. there one time. I was actually driving to the Mayo Clinic over in Minnesota. 
I had to spend the night in Madison. And when I got up the next morning, the radio said it's an unseasonably warm minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And when I brushed by the uh, stairway pole there, I stuck to it. And I'm pretty sure if the temperature is cold enough that you just stick to it, um, that might be a good, easy place. Analog, yeah. And the the kids in that town are pretty cool. Um, They're a little crazy (laughs) because it's a college town, but that sounds like uh, if you need to go there in cold weather. Yeah, Thank you very yeah. much uh, for coming on the show, Eric. I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your TED Talk. And I'm, oh, uh, we'll make sure we direct people to uh, um, to that talk. Where else, if they wanted to learn more about you or what you're doing with Moxie, where could sure. they find you? Yeah, uh, I have a website, so I'll, I'll send the link for that. Okay. And I'll also link the Moxie um, the mock, we have you know our own page for Mox right. as well, just to show some how the technology works and some of the mission updates. I think so. Perfect. I'll be happy to send those along. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and uh, comment. Easy for me to say. We'll see you next time at the QTS Experience. See you, everybody. <laughs>